0: This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 125 Bridges. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. The word bridge does not occur in the Bible, not in any translation I checked, anyway. But the idea of bringing two sides together, for better or for worse, is a constant theme in the text. This week we will discuss the bridge God refuses to build in eternal realms, the bridges he has built for us now and how we can best use them, the real-life soap opera that topped the country music charts for years, and the futile quest for the shortest distance between two points. Let's start with what I've been preaching. I refer you here to the story of the rich man and Lazarus contained in Luke chapter 16, starting in verse number 19, and I'll give you a fair warning. There is no bridge between the one side where Lazarus is and the other side where the rich man is, who is traditionally called Divas, which is translated as rich man. At any rate, we read in verse number 19 and following. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you had received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' bad things, but now he has been comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. I'll mention here in brief, I don't believe for a second that this story is given to us so that we will have a snapshot of what the afterlife looks like. Nevertheless, there is a clear message given to us with regard to certain basic aspects of the afterlife, the most important of which is this. There are two sides, and there is no crossing over from one to the other. This is the Lazarus Divus Bridge, if you will. The reason it's not built in eternity is because it was not built in life. And that's the main point that we're getting at here, that there could have been fellowship. There could have been connection between the rich man and Lazarus, but such was not the case. And now in the afterlife, it's too late. You have an opportunity and an obligation to contribute to this bridge, to connect people in Jesus. There is a profound absence of brotherhood among certain ones in our culture, and you know it as well as I do. Galatians 3.28 is the classic text to go to, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. We're not suggesting here, Jesus isn't suggesting through Paul here, that there's no such thing as rich people or poor people, or that there should not be anymore, that there's no such thing as men and women. What he's saying there is that we are all connected in Jesus, we are brought together in this fellowship. This means fighting the urge to draw lines of distinction, to put us in different camps. All of that is supposed to be done away with in Jesus. We are supposed to be bridging that gap. If we emphasize our differences instead of our similarities, our commonality, then we will never connect with one another as we should. The same thing goes for the kindness that should be part and parcel with our walk with Christ. It should be the most natural thing in the world, that Christians are kind to one another. And this is especially given to us in the context of rich people and poor people. For instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17 and following, "...instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy." Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Paul's point here is not so much rich people need to give all of their goods away to poor people simply for the sake of not being rich anymore, but rather allowing the blessings that God has given to us to become a way to connect with one another. There's also a tremendous lack of instruction, an absence of instruction that is implied in this text. And I'm not sure exactly how well-versed the poor man here, Lazarus, is in the things of God. I think the implication is he is right with God because he's on the right side, clearly. That does not necessarily mean he's some kind of doctor of the law or whatever, but he knows more about the things of God than the rich man does. This assumption that this person doesn't have anything to teach me, this person doesn't have anything to teach me, is rooted in arrogance and not in the scriptures. There is another relatively poor man, at least this described in John chapter nine, verses thirty through thirty-four. Actually, he appears earlier in the text. Of course, he's born blind, and Jesus is able to heal him. And then he goes to the Sanhedrin court and starts lecturing them about what holiness is, about what righteousness is. Surely this man must be from God, or he wouldn't be able to do these kind of things. And instead of listening to this common sense teaching from God's Word, they say, well, you're trying to teach us something, and they just throw him out of the synagogue. We are not embracing the opportunities to learn from one another while we are here in the flesh. It very well may be that there's something that this stranger has to teach me that I need to learn. Wouldn't it be a better idea for me to embrace that knowledge, to embrace that wisdom, to embrace humility, and allow someone to give me the information that I needed to have? Surely the rich man here in torment wishes desperately that he had learned this lesson, whether from Lazarus or from anybody else prior to this he didn't learn it, and now he's paying the penalty. So what we need to do is build this bridge between brothers and sisters in Christ while we have an opportunity. Because if this parable teaches us anything, it teaches us this, that there will come a time when the opportunity will not be there anymore. Let's seize the opportunity while we can. Build that bridge. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. I've been doing this podcast for 125 weeks now. I doubt that there is a single book that I've read the entire time that I understood less perfectly than Engineers of Dreams by Henry Petrosky. The book is a history of American bridge building. As we became more and more industrial, as it became more and more important to carry large, heavy loads from one place to another, rivers were in the way. The need to connect people on two sides of a river, connecting them by a railroad. That fascinated me. What is it that makes for a great bridge? I ask that question in a spiritual context because God makes us into bridge builders, he himself being the greatest bridge builder of all. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for instance, in verses 17 and following, we see the bridge that connects human beings to God in the first place, the bridge that is built by Jesus Christ starting in verse number 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This idea of reconciliation, that's bridge building. That's God seeing the gap that sin has created between himself and his creation and wanting to overcome that, wanting to bridge that. That's why Jesus comes into the world. Only Jesus could accomplish this, this grand scheme of redemption in the mind of God. He is able to forgive us of our sins, bring us into a loving, and holy relationship with our Heavenly Father, where we can be justified in His eyes and Him still be a just God who punishes sin. This is given to us in Romans chapter 3, especially in chapter 4, and really the whole book of Romans is emphasizing this, that we can be connected to God through Jesus, not because we were so great, but because He is so great and because His grace is so great. Well, if great design, then, is an important part of bridge building, then surely great location is also necessary. We have to build it in the right place where it can accomplish the most good. And this bridge is built for us in the church. It is built for us in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 3 talks about that, how this eternal, magnificent plan of God was realized in the church. And it sounds like reading the text here that even heavenly beings, even the angels, did not properly understand this. But when God reveals it to us in Acts chapter 2, as the apostles speak the word for the first time, how we can be, in fact, reconciled to God. And later on, as the apostle Peter reaches out to Cornelius and his family and brings Gentiles into the fold also, this magnificent plan that connects all of mankind, at least conceptually, to God is revealed to us. Paul writes in Ephesians 3, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, which, as I wrote it before in brief, By referring to this when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. God put me here to not build the bridge, God has already done that, to tell you about it, to tell you how this river of life in Jesus Christ can be partaken of by Jews and Gentiles alike. And it might be worth noting here Great space is given in the book to the idea of aesthetics, a beautiful-looking bridge. Uh, clearly, that is not the main point. You want a bridge to be functional. But at the same time, if we're going to put this kind of effort into it, shouldn't it look nice also? Maybe it's not the most important point in the world, but I was looking at Genesis chapter 28 verse 12 and seeing the bridge that God builds between earth and heaven itself seen as this ladder where angels are ascending and descending. And Jacob takes this all in, and it's just blown away by the majesty of this scene, this incredible picture of how God connects with us. Surely the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen. It staggers the imagination that God is able to do something this wonderful that would instill in us these feelings of grandeur, of spectacle, We can actually reach heaven. We can climb this ladder. What a marvelous thing that is. We ought to live in amazement every single day, especially as we read in the text these efforts that the inspired writers make to show us what heaven is going to be like. We can aspire to that. We can have a little bitty glimpse into heavenly realms living in confidence that one day the real thing, not just an appearance of heaven, but the real thing will be given to us. And if this scene that Jacob sees in the wilderness is a beautiful thing, how much more beautiful is the real vision of heaven going to be when we finally arrive there in all of the glory that God gives to us and all the glory that is his? What a magnificent thing that's going to be. That's a bridge I want to walk down one day. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. To be fair to Naomi and Winona Judd, I don't know what it would be like if I got to slash had to work every day with my mother or with my daughter, as far as that goes. It's very easy for me from a distance to say surely people who love one another ought to get along with one another and i gather that by and large the juds did but they didn't always and that is by their own testimony i wasn't necessarily caught up in the juds music let alone the juds family relationship when i was growing up i had a passing acquaintance with them because i listened to some country music and it's difficult to walk down a shopping aisle sometimes and not get at least a little bit of a glimpse into what's going on behind the scenes in these celebrity families. And it was no secret that Winona and Naomi did not always get along. Ultimately, Naomi wrote a book about it called Love Can Build a Bridge, which is unapologetically stolen from the title of one of their big hit songs. The idea that they did not always necessarily get along. In fact, it got to a point after eight years or so where they could not work together That did not mean they didn't love one another. That didn't mean that they had quit on one another. It simply meant they had to do what they had to do to save their relationship because it was worth saving. And there is no question that whatever kind of monetary or popular success you might get out there in the world, it's not worth tearing up your relationship with people that you love. It should be much more important to us to build bridges, for us to connect with people that we care about. I found myself humming this song, which I don't really even know all that well, to myself when I was preparing a lesson on bridges, when I was preparing the podcast about bridges, Love Can Build a Bridge. It was kind of between this one and Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel. Two songs that essentially amount to the same kind of message that there is trouble in life, there is difficulty. Sometimes it's of our own making, sometimes it's the world that we live in. Either way, there are relationships that we have with one another that comfort us, that strengthen us, that get us through these things. And it is imperative that we seek these relationships, that we feed these relationships, and that we allow them to help us through these challenging, difficult, dangerous times. I want to talk about building a bridge between ourselves and our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially building a family relationship, sometimes between peers, sometimes between elders and youngers, whoever it happens to be. If we are brethren, if we are brothers and sisters in Christ, then it is needful for us to build bridges to connect with one another. A church in Philippi that was evidently a source of joy, to everyone who knew them, and apparently doing very, very good in their work with Christ. Paul stops in the middle of his letter and addresses two particular women who were not getting along and tells the entire church, and especially people in position to help with this, you need to work this out. You need to build a bridge between Euodia and Syntyche. You need to figure out a way to help them live together in peace and in harmony and in love. Be that true yoke fellow that Paul talks about why wouldn't we want to do that? We have the love of God that is manifested in our hearts. We see what God has done for us, and it should be reflected in the way that we live with one another. John writes in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, as you are well familiar, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, going through verse number 11 there. We need to remember the example that Jesus gave for us. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, if therefore there's any encouragement of Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself." Taking the form of bond bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, going through verse number eight there. This is the power of God that we see in the love of Christ, that he is able to intervene on our behalf, not because we were worthy of it but right, because we weren't worthy, because he loved us in our weakness and intervened on our behalf at great personal expense. How can we deny that to someone else when we claim to be loving our brethren, when we claim to be following the example of Jesus Christ who gave up so much for us? We need to remember also, while we are complaining about the shortcomings of our brethren who may or may not deserve in our own mind our forgiveness, remember that we didn't deserve forgiveness when we sinned. Jesus tells the great story about these two debtors, these two servants of this master, one who of this tremendous amount and was forgiven. And then he himself turns on his fellow worker and assaults him, essentially, in pursuit of a very small debt that that man had owed to him. If we are unwilling to forgive others, then he will not forgive us. And such is said in so many words in the context of the model prayer, remember, in Matthew chapter 6. What we need to do is step up and be accountable for this bridge-building process. If we truly love, if we truly connect and want to connect with brothers and sisters in Christ, then we need to take the initiative. We need to be responsible. The pairing of Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, and Matthew 18, verse 15 is remarkable whether you are the one who is being done wrong or you are the one who possibly may have done wrong. Either way, we are active. We are pursuing this relationship. Ideally, we meet the brother or sister in Christ in question in the middle of the road because they are coming to meet us. But whether they do or not is not the point. We have to take ownership of our own responsibility, our own desire for fellowship. If love will, in fact, build a bridge, let's have that love. We are determined to do what Jesus has done for us and what he has asked us to do for others. Our calling requires nothing less than that. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. This is what I've been playing. Whistle Stop is what they call a pick-up-and-deliver game. Basically, you have a board that is mostly empty and you have various tiles that you have access to. There are stations on one side of the board where you begin. There are stations on the other side of the board, which are your destinations. And in the middle, you have various places that have things that you pick up. Maybe it's coal, maybe it's beef or whatever. And your job is to build a railroad line that will connect one station with another station and empower you to take the things that you want to buy and give them to the people who you want to sell them to. You have to bridge the gap between the one space and the other space. You would figure the easy way is just to have one stretch of track facing from one direction to the other direction, and then you're done. But no, that would be too simple. We don't want to do it quite that way. So we'll have two or three different lines of track entering in one part of the hexagonal tile and exiting at a different part. And oftentimes it's difficult to tell which end on one side of the tile matches up with an end on the other side of the tile. Because if you've ever seen spaghetti, you realize that determining exactly where one line begins and one line ends can be kind of complicated. And at some point, you just kind of start scratching your head and think, why does it have to be this complicated? Why does it have to be this difficult? And of course, in the context of the game, it's because laying tiles down that have just one piece of track from one end to the other is not especially interesting. That might be fine for a four-year-old's game, but for adults, for people who, who want a bit of a challenge, that wouldn't be much of a game. And when you look at the way that life pans out for us, when you look at the problems that we are asked to deal with in this life... We yearn for simple solutions. Why can't we just go from one place to the other and be done with it? And invariably, we find out that that's not going to work. That's not the hand that God has dealt us. And we can complain about that, or we can make the best of it as we have opportunity. This is not an especially difficult game to play. You can do it. You just have to concentrate. You have to have a bit of a plan, and you have to keep your eyes on the prize. That's what life is all about. Life is complicated, and that includes, and especially includes, our dealings with one another. The difficulties that we have with brothers and sisters in Christ especially seem like they have no rational explanation. There's no justification for doing this. If we are brethren, we ought to be able to get along. In a perfect world, yes, that's absolutely true. And we can work toward that perfect world. No question about that. If you exert yourself, and if you are paired up with someone who also is exerting themselves, you can make this work. It's kind of a tangled mess between here and there, but you can help this happen. But it doesn't always work. Sometimes, for instance, Jude verse 3 and 4 tell us, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were Long beforehand, marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. He says here specifically the reason that you have trouble uniting with people in the faith is because some people aren't in the faith. Some people are determined, in fact, to reject the faith. And here we're talking about this this system of belief, the gospel message itself at its core. We're going to differ in judgment from time to time, and we can deal with that. Romans chapter 14 is one of many passages that talks about that. But sometimes people simply are not in the faith. They don't believe the same gospel that you believe. There may be a situation where you can't reconcile over these things because you are connected to Jesus first and foremost. And I can't be connected to Jesus and be connected to somebody who's not connected to Jesus. My fellowship cannot extend beyond where his fellowship is. He gets to decide who's in the right relationship with him. I have to respect that. And if someone is determined not to do that consciously or unconsciously, that's going to put a barrier in front of me and that brother or sister, that neighbor, that I can't get around. Hopefully, my continued association with that person will help them understand the truth. Hopefully, I can teach him in love and in patience. But if not, I'm going to have to accept the reality of the situation. Sometimes it's my fault. Sometimes I am simply not committed to this task. I don't want fellowship as badly as I should. I'm asked to go the extra mile. I'm asked to turn the other cheek, and I simply refuse to do it. I, I don't want to do that. Despite what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, no matter how many times I read Matthew chapter 5, verses 38-42, through 42, and related passages also, I'm just not prepared to do that. A person like that is simply not valuing fellowship enough. I was thinking about the book of Judges in this context. I was thinking about Judges chapter 3 and verse 2 and and thinking to myself, maybe it's God's plan that it work out this way. Maybe God didn't give us a straightforward relationship because he doesn't want us to have one. Somebody says, well, how could God not want us to get along with one another? I'm not saying that he doesn't want us to get along. I'm saying that maybe it's good for us to exert ourselves. It's good for us to challenge ourselves, like in the in the game. Simply putting one piece on top of another, that's not really much of a challenge. That's not exerting ourselves. That's not showing a commitment to the game, to the process. Likewise, as we read in Judges chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. He talks about these nations that were not driven out completely. It was their task to drive them out completely in Joshua's day. They didn't do that. And God says, fine, I will turn lemons into lemonade. If you choose not to do what I told you to do, I will make this into a blessing. Your failure to do the right thing, your failure to be committed to this task that I gave you, is going to set your children and your grandchildren up for similar experiences, growth experiences, learning experiences. That may or may not be comfort to you as you struggle in your relationships, but know that God is working patience in you. He's working patience in your brethren, helping us to seek strengthen him to seek patience, to seek long-suffering. These are valuable traits that do not come to us easily. And if we can develop patience with one another in this bond of love, then that sets us up for exercising patience in other situations also, that we can be long-suffering with our neighbors, with those who are on the outside, those who are warring against us, our enemies. We can patiently endure the difficulties that life brings to us in any situation if we quit demanding essentially, that God give us an easy road to take. If we will accept whatever road it is, if we will exert ourselves in that road, if we will submit to his will and learn whatever it is he is giving us to learn, then we will be in position to grow our relationships, to mend our fences, to build bridges, and hopefully intensify relationships. Many people in formerly broken relationships will tell them, will tell you that the process of reconciliation made them stronger than they ever were before. That can be us if we choose to make it so. But it's going to have to be a conscious choice on our part. The unity of the spirit and the bond of peace that Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter four and verses one through three, that can be ours if we determine to get it. If we work for it, if we are patient in it, if we allow God to bless us in his way and in his time, we can get to the point where we are in fact building our fellowship, building our love, building our bridges, and hopefully showing an example to others so that they can do the same. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammons.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the citizen of heaven, signing off.